Welcome to the Parang Sessions. In this episode with gallery curator Clarissa Chikamko, learn more about artist Constancio Bernardo and his pursuit of abstraction in post-war Philippines through his painting, Bernardian Synthesis No. 1. Thank you for coming here on a rainy Saturday afternoon um, to spend time, like one hour, um, talking about Constancio Bernardo and his painting. Uh, and um, importantly, we've you know framed the talk. If you notice, it says in conversation with Clarissa uh, Chikiamko. So I don't want it to just be me talking. You know, I want to be conversing with you, and I also want you to be you know conversing with the painting. And hopefully, the painting also um, speaks back to you. Um, and so we thought we'd also try a little something different. Um, which is actually, oh my gosh, we're actually going to look at this painting for five to six minutes. Um, you know, there have been some past um, museum studies that have been done on how long a visitor takes looking at a work of art. Um, and the responses usually range from uh, two to 30 seconds, you know. Um, so I guess like spending five to six minutes looking at a painting, hmm, okay, I think it will be interesting. Um, and to kind of um, facilitate that, we'll be playing also some music. Um, and this is music that likely um, Constancio listened to um, when he was painting himself. Um, so his family um, have been very helpful. So even though they couldn't join us today, I'd really like to thank um, the members of the Bernardo family and the Constancio Bernardo Foundation because they've answered a lot of my queries and they've also shared um, a lot of images that I could also show to you today. Um, and after we play, we look at this painting for six minutes, I'll be asking you some questions um, and for you to just kind of like write your responses on yeah, these pieces of paper that they're distributing. Yeah, does everyone have paper, pencil? And I know it can probably be distracting, like, I don't know, maybe after the first minute, you're gonna wanna look over there, around, you wanna look at your neighbor, you know, maybe you wanna start writing down something, you know, but I would really encourage you to just, you know, just try to look at the painting for like five to six minutes, you know, for the duration of the music. Okay, so we can start. Yeah, yeah. If you'd like to come closer, that's okay too. Thank you. 
Okay, so for those who haven't started scribbling already, maybe you can spend the next couple of minutes um, just writing down about your experience on, you know, on looking at the work, um, how you felt, were there any kind of associations that kind of came to mind? Okay, so would anybody like to share or should I call someone? <laughs> Volunteers? Would you like to volunteer? Well, I'm already, already calling you anyway, yeah. Um, I think the first thing that I thought when I saw this was that because it has three panels that opens this way, so it's kind of like an altarpiece. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And then the yellow at the center reminds me of the sun. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, I think that the work feels like a very human construct, like it's not natural because it's all abstract. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, would you like to share? I noticed you've scribbled a lot of things down, so yeah, advantage of sitting in front. Yeah. Um, I read that the artist kind of came into contact with people like Mark Morfo when he was in the States at Yale. Well, right, so at first I thought that the kind of triptych was kind of an invitation for like spiritual contemplation. And then when, this, when the music started playing, um, because I think this was impressionist music, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 I thought it was kind of trying to explore the idea of like subtle variations in tonality with like color. Mm -hmm. um, so like the overlaps between the circles are where you get quite interesting uh, tonal variations. Then, so I mean, at first I thought this was kind of just like a standard late abstract impressionist work. Uh, expressionist work, but then as I looked more at it, I think actually the artist maybe was more interested in impressionism in the sense that it's kind of how different colors play with each other. Mm -hmm. And then there, right? Uh, I, I don't know whether it was intentional, but I noticed after a while that the works were more streaky than I realized. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's like just poor. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so that's what I was thinking. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, would you like to? Would you like to share one more sharing? By going to you. <laughs> um, mine's really like a very famous. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um. I just. I feel a lot like I stared at it. I think because of the opacity. Yeah. I thought about like jelly bouncing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the more I stared at the opa, it's just like a freezing sun. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Um, so Constantio, actually, he really wanted actually the viewers to be able to, you know, construct meaning, you know, out of his work. Um, and I'll read to you um, something that he said. Um, he said, uh, I should not rationalize for the spectator the attitudes he assumes in relation to my work. I leave it to my work to suggest to him the manner of appreciating it. Perhaps, if the spectator would allow himself to grow with it, my work may be able to accommodate such growth in an agreeable relationship. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's nice also to be able to kind of, you know, a lot of times we're always just reading, reading labels, reading texts, you know, trying to find out the context. But I think it's nice also sometimes to just kind of practice this thing, you know, just kind of looking at a work and just seeing, um, 
what we can observe um, um, after looking at it from a long uh, period of time. Uh, but we can go into like um, some background information of Constantio. You know, as I say, it's like what we, um, we I titled the talk "Doors into Constantio Bernardo." It's a way of just kind of you know looking at kind of different ways that you can also access him. And he has a very, you know, um, interesting life story. Um, so he was born in the Philippines in 1913. Um, and his father um, passed away when he was quite young, when he was five years old. Uh, so actually, um, it caused great financial difficulty um, to his family. So what happened was he could not um, study continuously you know, unlike his peers. So he was on and off in school. You know, sometimes he'd have to stop studying, actually, to um, work, actually, to help the family with work. And by the time that he graduated um, high school, um, it would have been maybe 16, 17, you know, at the time. Um, he was already 20 years old. Um, and then he entered into the University of the Philippines. Um, and he wanted to get a diploma in painting. So this was actually a two-year course, you know, if you study full-time. Uh, and it actually took him seven years to complete it. Yeah, because the, of the financial situation, you know. So he was just, sometimes he could only take like one class a semester, you know. So it, it took him um, quite a long time. Um, and when he finally finished it, uh, the diploma. Um, so he then he moved on to studying a bachelor um, of liberal arts, actually. And this was, he was one year, about one year into it. And then it was 1942. So it was the outbreak of World War II. You know, um, the Japanese occupied Manila and he stopped, he had to stop schooling um, for a while. And then he resumed, he resumed his studies after the war. Um, so when he finally finished his Bachelor of Fine Arts, so he got persuaded to move from liberal arts to pursuing a full Bachelor of Fine Arts. It was already 1948, so that would have already made him uh, 35, 35 years old. You know, so he was quite, you know, he was much older actually um, than his peers in school at that time. Uh, and so this is actually, um, uh, self-portrait that he did at 25 years old. Um, so you can see um, also like his skills. I'm just gonna pass that around. Um, and you know, his mentor at University of the Philippines was um, this guy. So if you guys are also familiar with um, Philippine art or, or Southeast Asia gallery narrative, um, you would know that this is uh, Fernando Mersolo. So he was like pretty much the dominant painter in Philippine art the first half of the uh, 20th century. Um, he was known for doing, you know, kind of paintings like these. You know, beautiful um, country maidens or um, people planting rice, you know, kind of very um, romantic ideas of, you know, of, of the rural, you know. And uh, um, Amersola was actually, 
You know, he may have been like one of our first artist celebrities, you'd say, because he would even appear in advertisements. Like, and I think I remember seeing some kind of car advertisement, like we saw him just driving a car. <laughs> you know, he was just really that powerful um, a force. And a lot of the painters that followed him and followed his style, um, they became kind of labeled as, you know, conservative uh, painters. So this was actually, um, so this was actually um, uh, Constantius' mentor. You know, which is very interesting. Um, looking at the, at the difference. Um, okay, let me just set it around here. Uh, okay, and then um, when he finished his Bachelor of Fine Arts in 1948, he got the opportunity actually on a Fulbright scholarship um, to go to the U.S. Um, and he would um, complete a number of things there. So he was there about three to four years. Um, so he did like a diploma of uh, course certificate in painting, Bachelor of Fine Arts, uh, Master of Fine Arts um, during that time, which is quite a lot considering he was only there about three to four years. Uh, and you can see um, these are some of the drawings that he did in Yale. Um, just how much skill, you know, he had. You know, and you can see like why, you know, Amor Solo just so, saw just so much promise um, in him. You know, just really um, beautiful, skillful uh, drawings. Um, yeah, and this is him at Yale. Um, but in 1950, let me just double check on this date. Yes, 1950, there was someone who actually came to Yale and it was be a very um, influential person to uh, Constantia. And this was um, Josef Albers. So he was a German painter um, who studied and taught actually in the Bauhaus in Germany. Um, and the Bauhaus was forced to shut down in 1933, the time when there was the rise of the Nazis, um, and many of them actually fled uh, to the U.S. Um, so Yosef was actually given a position at this um, other university, um, Black Mountain College. Um, so he was there for a number of years. Um, and in 1950, he, uh, he moved to Yale. And Albers is um, most well known for doing these kinds of series, um, Homage to the Square. So you have like these, you know, kind of formats and it just has, you know, you play around with the different colors. Um, and Yosef actually wrote a very kind of, um, very seminal book on the interaction of color. And uh, what Yosef was also saying was that, you know, color is actually something that is, you know, quite relative. Um, like when you ask people to think of like the color red, for example, said like if there are, you know, 20 people, when they think of red, they probably all have a different color red in mind, you know? So it's actually quite something that's, you know, personal as well. We all have a different memory of color. And one of uh, 
um, Albert's, Albert's point was that, you know, you never see color by itself. You know, it's always in relation to another color, you know, to other colors. Um, and um, he also made this kind of um, comparison to music, which is why I also wanted to play music at the start. Um, and uh, Albert wrote that hearing like single tones don't make music, you know. And he said, hearing music depends on the recognition of the in-between of the tone, you know, of their placing and of their spacing. So he was kind of making that analogy with how we see, you know, colors as well. And how, depending on, you know, which color is alongside which, you know, it can have a very kind of different effect. Um, so what happened to Constantia, you know, with Albert? So from, you, you know, you, so now you've seen like all of those kind of beautiful figurative sketches. Um, so this was like his, um, his thesis painting. Yeah, um, Perpetual Motion, opus number one. So this was also him at Yale. So you can see I have a bigger blow up of it. So he actually continuously reworked this painting till 1980. So it's about 1950s to 1980. Okay, yeah. So then you have a kind of a very different <laughs> um, Constantia like from the start. Um, and he, um, it's quite interesting as well because you know, also coming um, from, from the Philippines where, you know, it's a very Catholic country, you know, there's a lot of um, religion, you know, spirituality. And I thought it was quite interesting as well that when I asked also about your observations um, on the painting, some of you kind of picked up, you know, on the spiritual kind of aspect. Um, I've spent a bit of time reading Constantius' thesis, um, the one that he submitted for his Master's of Fine Arts at Yale. It is very difficult to read, let me tell you. <laughs> it is very, like, philosophical, and sometimes I, you know, I'm just being honest, it was very kind of challenging to read. But he kind of, um, he's kind of getting at this theory of, you know, um, the absolute or the spiritual, you know, being able to kind of manifest itself in to some degree in painting. And um, thought I would read for you some excerpt. So I tried to pick the one that is not as confusing, but if you are confused, then it, it's okay. <laughs> It's a little bit long, but anyway, I, I think it's just nice sometimes to just hear from, you know, hear from the artist um, himself, you know, especially since, you know, he's already passed away and he can't be with us today. Um, okay, so let me read this for you. So he goes, um, basic to such a theory is the principle that absolute beauty in the experiential should be manifested in its full objectivity. This does not mean simply that such painting has achieved its purpose when it has captured the objectivity of the ordinary world. On the contrary, 
any representation is mere expression of and not a reduplication of reality. Everything that a painter does on canvas is abstraction. Whether he is imitating the objectivity of nature or dealing with the objectivity of some concept or idea. Hence, it is futile to denote an objective artist as one who concerns himself with the objectivity, objectivity of nature, or an abstractive artist as one whose purpose is to abstract, say, the objectivity of nature or that of some concept or idea. The artist may or may not know the limits of possibilities involved in his type of painting. And usually, an artist who is so aware makes use of this knowledge, not in an attempt to approximate more and more nature's reality or the rational concept, but ever to enlarge his powers of imagery. Yet we would want to maintain further that, regardless of his artistic bent, he must also be aware, consciously or subconsciously, of those interrelations of experiential absolutes which will elicit the greatest spiritual response to the purpose at hand. For only in this way can the artist be certain that his painting manifests, to a degree, absolute beauty. Objectivity, then, in absolute painting is not limited to the objectivity of the ordinary world. This it includes, but there is a deeper kind implied by the theory as a priori or absolute objectivity. This is the objectivity involved in the principle of metaphysical transference, which makes possible the manifestation of the absolute through absolute beauty or any other spiritual absolute in the field of experiential subjective relations. Because all experiential absolutes Space, time, man, mind, color, line, form, etc., can lay claim to this absolute sort of objectivity, in addition to possessing the objectivity relative to the experiential world, the manifestation of absolute beauty in painting is possible. A conjectural prediction, because it provides for the possibility of depicting in paint the absoluteness, absoluteness of beauty in its barest form, absolute painting is able to account for equally as well as non-objective painting can, the present tendencies of contemporary art. The freedom which non-objective painting allows to the artist can be had in absolute painting, since absolute painting frees the sensuous quality of a painting from any spiritual or conceptual content which might be prejudiced by relative taste and judgment, which lessen the a priori, a, a priori or absolute objectivity of absolute beauty. Yeah. So, actually, um, I was wondering when I read this thesis of his, which he wrote in 1952, you know, which you can, I don't know if this, you know, you really immediately understood it. We also found it difficult to understand. Um, and actually, you know, the one who reviewed his thesis, the one who commended that he be able to graduate, it's funny, also in his, he also says that he found it difficult to understand. <laughs> but he was commending graduate, and he said it was all his own limitation and not, not of the artist, actually. You know, because I think the artist was working with a certain teacher that had a very, like, philosophical bent. Um, but I was wondering just how much he, you know, still continued to 
kind of believe in this, um, you know, that kind of idea of spirituality um, as he continued to kind of work um, throughout the years. You know, I'm not quite sure if it was something that, you know, he continued or what. Um, you know, but um, interestingly, like also when I saw this painting as well, you know, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like an altarpiece form. It's actually um, five paintings in one. So um, they're also, it's hard to see, but you know, the, it's not just plain white at the back. You know, there, there are also paintings like in the doors actually. And you can actually configure it um, in different ways. Um, but you know, back to Constancio and his turn to abstraction. Um, so he returned to Manila in 1952. And you know, um, what, happened, what happened next? Um, so his teacher, Albers, reportedly told him, um, when you return to Manila, you will create an explosion in art. So did he, did he create an explosion? Um, so I'm gonna read actually, yes, I'm gonna read something else, uh, but it's by an art critic, uh, Rico Reda de Metilio, who wrote a lot in the Philippines in the 50s and the 60s. Um, and so he wrote this on the occasion of Constantia's uh, solo exhibition in 1956. Um, so he also says what, you know, Albers reportedly um, told Constancio, and um, another professor of painting in Yale also told Bernardo, you will be the hope of the Orient. You know, so all of these like kind of predictions for, you know, for him. Um, but uh, Demetilio says, um, it is now more than three years since Bernardo returned from abroad, but there have been no explosions. <laughs> For quite a while, not even a ripple. <laughs> Moreover, in that many years, Bernardo had been forced practically to hide his modernist paintings for fear that he would be damned by unsympathetic fellow faculty members and frowned on by the head of his department, now retired. So this is Amersolo. Um, subjected to remarks like, I can't understand your paintings. Uh, Bernardo had actually reverted to painting sentimental, totally innocuous canvases about mothers holding their fat babies, fishermen putting out to sea, and boys riding bicycles. <laughs> so this is actually um, quite interesting. And um, a part of me wondered also um, when reading this, how much of this was actually Bernardo's own um, um, internalization of the pressure. You know, I'm not sure if this was really something that, you know, his um, former teachers or mentors would have actually put upon him. Now, Amersolo, um, when he was asked to judge, you know, one of the first um, major art contests in the Philippines in 1948. So this was first um, annual painting contest done by the Art Association of the Philippines. Um, Amersolo was actually one of the judges. 
And I mentioned before that, you know, the followers of Amr Solo, they were kind of called conservatives. And the other group was called like the moderns, you know. And actually, Amr Solo, um, you know, voted for some of the moderns um, during that first contest, you know. So I, this was actually one of the surprising things that for me when I was like learning about Constantia's story, like um, would Amr Solo really have like um, held, you know, Constantia back from this, you know, he seemed like a very genteel person, I mean, just based on reading on Amr Solo. So just for me, quite surprising. So I'm not quite, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what is, you know, what is the story here. Um, but we know that Bernardo was kind of um, feeling that pressure. Um, so Demetilio also goes on to say, um, part of his difficulties was caused, one suspects, by the fact that these mentors had striven hard to send him abroad, and Bernardo thought they expected him to return back to the home grounds perfected in academism. Whereas his Yale teachers, steeped in the theories and practice of avant-garde art, did everything to remove all the thick layers of academism and bear the true artist in him, who would eschew all surface considerations, but will pay attention to the interior vision of reality and their purely formal arrangement and the process of objectively correlating experience in plastic terms. This process of removing the academic patina was in reality an experience of total revolution for Bernardo, as for most Filipino artists sent abroad, in attitude, you know, in feeling. Um, I guess one other thing which also struck me, you know, just the kind of experience also of um, going abroad. You know, I'm sure this is Singapore. You know, there's one of the best airports in the world, one of the easiest places to fly out. You know, I'm sure all of you have, you know, um, traveled at some point, you know, maybe lived in another country for, for work or for studies. You know, and just, you know, just thinking about also how that experience, you know, kind of changes you. And when you go back, you know, you're a different person. And maybe when you go back, it's also a different place as well from how you remember it. Um, and the uh, material actually called Bernardo one of the most exciting painters in the country. And he would liken him to, you know, other really important Philippine modernists, um, many whose works we have here in the Southeast Asia Gallery. So we, he mentioned um, uh, Zobel, so we have Zobel's work there. Uh, Ichiro Campo, it's in Southeast Asia Gallery 7. Um, so this is just um, his show at 1956 at the Philippine Art Gallery. So this is just the image of the kind of catalog. So I'm going to pass that here. It's from the Prita Kalo de Desma archives. Um, so after this show at um, 1956, he had another one in 1959. And it would actually be a very long time before he would exhibit again. I think it was his next solo show was in, sorry, it was 58 and then 69. So he had about 11 years till his um, next um, solo show. Um, and the important thing about him, I guess, to note is not, even though he was 
kind of doing abstract paintings and not necessarily exhibiting them. Um, he still continued to um, do, you know, figurative painting, you know. Um, he, because when he returned, he um, was a teacher at University of the Philippines School of Fine Arts. Um, so he had a lot of, okay, where's him? Yeah, so he actually taught at University of the Philippines until his retirement, mandatory retirement. As you can see there with some students. Um, and the 1970s was actually when he was most active, you know, as an exhibiting artist. Um, and Ray Albano, who is also a very important um, Philippine artist, and he was the head of the uh, museum division of the Cultural Center of the Philippines at that time. And he wrote a lot as well. Um, he would kind of attribute Bernardo being more active in the 70s because at that point, you know, a lot of the other Philippine painters who were um, doing abstract painting had kind of found recognition. So um, Albano theorizes Constantia felt it was kind of um, safer to exhibit more. Um, and Constantia actually um, would say that it was partly also due to the lack of an appropriate medium. So when he did that um, abstract painting that he did at Yale, he was using oil. Um, and later he would switch to acrylic. You know, and acrylic wasn't something that was you know, readily available. Um, probably the one most well known for doing acrylic paintings is in the Philippines is actually the Aguinaldo. So an example of his work there. Um, um, and he says, uh, at his exhibition at uh, Cultural Center of the Philippines in 1971, um, samples of this phase were exhibited at the Philippine Art Gallery and at the University of the Philippines in the early 1950s, drawing some attention yet somehow misunderstood. I had to discontinue this phase due as much to lack of the right material medium as to my time being mostly then devoted to teaching art at the University of the Philippines. This gap, however, served well as a period of gestation with less irrelevant involvement and the introduction of acrylic for artists, a difficult medium yet suitable for seco technique. I am now able to resume this phase. And he would actually call this phase abstract constructivism constructive abstraction of optical phenomena. Um, and so it's interesting to know like um, his further reception, you know, then. So they were, you know, a lot of people also um, praised him. So one was Leonidas Benessa, who was a very important art critic in that period. And he would say, in the field of abstraction, particularly of the geometric, planar, optical painting variety, Constantia Bernardo is second to none in this country. Um, and another writer um, also said, Constantia Ma Bernardo, who brought up art to the Philippines on December 2, 1952, I don't know why the date is so specific. Don't know. <laughs> Leads all other op artists on this score. 
Furthermore, his linear upworks that intimate oriental subtlety make his works a class in themselves. On this level lies the raison d'etre of Bernardo's works. Yeah, so it's quite interesting also that he says intimate oriental subtlety, you know. Um, but, you know, the context also of this period was, you know, a lot of artists were also asking themselves, you know, what, you know, what is, you know, Philippine painting? You know, how can we manifest national identity in art? And this is also because the Philippines only became independent in 1946, um, after the war. That's when the you know Americans granted the Philippines full independence, and that was you know they had um, colonized the Philippines for 50 years, and before that was um, Spain for more than uh, 300 years. So having all of this kind of you know, burden, even the burden, the history of painting in the Philippines, which was, you know, introduced by Spain, you know, what makes, you know, what makes, you know, painting Filipino? So this was some debate that was happening in that period. And it was also, you know, the time of the Cold War, you know, and um, the Americans, the CIA, they've admitted, you know, they've used, you know, abstraction actually, as a weapon in the Cold War. And as a way to kind of counter, you know, the socialist realism, you know, artistic language um, of the Soviet Union. So it's kind of interesting to kind of see it in this um, bigger context. Um, so with this painting, this was actually shown in um, Constantia's 1978 solo exhibition at the Museum of Philippine Art. Um, and uh, Leon, uh, Leonelos Benessa actually uh, made particular remarks on this painting and another one as well. Okay. So you can actually see like the other configurations of this. And this is the other painting he referred to. So this is the other kind of like altarpiece painting. So he made two. And these are um, two of the largest paintings actually that he ever made. Um, so he talks about this. So the title of this and that other one is Bernardian Synthesis. So this is number one. The other one is number two. And with that he says, um, the above, which he means like he thinks that with this exhibition, Bernardo is saying farewell to Joseph Albers, his mentor. Um, and he goes, is dramatized by a pair of new works in the show which present two painted panels like a window, joined together with a lock in the middle, which could only be opened with the use of the right combination. I have been told that there are a set of paintings inside a la Albert's, but that the works on the outside are Bernardo's, with all that this presentation implies. The coded lock may also symbolize the need to know beforehand what Bernardo's abstract art in geometric colorism or chromatism is all about, the hidden key. For only then may we begin to appreciate what he is doing and has been doing in Philippine contemporary painting. 
Now, this was quite interesting because when I talked to the family, um, they actually don't remember it being closed. And they don't think it was a combination lock, if, if there was one. So they showed me actually what lock they think it could have been. So there's a lock and it's, um, it's engraved actually with his name and it has the, the year as well. Um, so it's the same date as, as this painting, 1978. So I don't know if maybe they saw it on another night or you know maybe it was closed during the opening night. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, I guess it's one of those things that will always um, uh, remain a mystery. Um, but I guess like with that major show of Bernardo and with these pieces, um, what Vanessa was just trying to get at that, you know, it was just showing that Bernardo just finally had, you know, confidence in himself, you know. After just, you know, so many years of, you know, have feeling this kind of internal pressure to kind of hide, you know, his abstraction, hide his influences. Um, he had done a number of paintings also in the 70s that actually, similar to Homage to the Square, but he had called it, you know, Okay, this is terrible printouts, by the way, you know, just because we're limited by our office printer. But anyway, you, you can somehow get the idea. But, you know, he would call it, um, you know, Homage to Albert. So it was a whole series, actually, that he did. Um, but I think he did that earlier, um, before he made this painting. So Homage to Albert, then, you know, Bernardian Synthesis, you know. So he was actually using, you know, his own name, you know, showing that kind of mark of confidence. Um, and it actually kind of fulfilled one of his wishes. So in his earlier show in the early 70s, he showed like these kind of smaller abstract paintings and he regarded them more actually as drawings, you know. Um, so he was finally able to do um, more large scale paintings. Um, and you can say that um, just the differences also in the tonalities just brings to mind what Bonessa had also written about Bernardo. And he says, Bernardo's feeling that in themselves, colors are pure vibrations, just like notes on the musical scale. You know, so actually I wanted to end the session with playing some music. Um, but before we do that, I thought I would Read a couple of quotes again. You know, I love doing that in my talks. You know, conversing with, or letting like kind of like dead artists speak to you since they're not here. I'll read things that they wrote. Um, but first I'm not gonna read something Constantia wrote, but actually one of his colleagues. So this is Fernando Sobel who um, did that painting in the back, the one with all of those lines um, from the Saita series. Uh, we have, couple in our own collection, which is in the Recollect, one of our new changing shows, um, which you can go look at after this. Um, and Zobel was actually, you know, when he did the Saita series, you know, which is, you know, essentially exploring, you know, um, exploring line, you know, drawing, drawing with painting, you know. Um, I was reading like some reviews in that period and we were like, some people were like, what are all of these lines? You know, what are all these lines in the painting? You know, and Zobel was actually a very, he was a very good writer, you know. 
And he wrote this thing, um, kind of like in defense of modern art, you know, defense of abstraction, um, which is, you know, also had gave me that idea of, you know, starting with kind of just looking at the painting. And we're gonna end by playing music and looking at the painting again. Um, and Zobel said, he wrote, I propose a simple test. How many people have sat for 10 minutes looking at a painting? It is likely to be torture the first time you try it. With a good painting, the torture will turn to excitement. With a bad or uninteresting painting, well, modern painting, like painting of every age, is meant to please the eye and only the eye. Its main difference from conservative painting is that it can afford to do this without any other pretenses. In the old days, a painting tried to please the eye. It also tried to bring in recollections, to go with the furniture, and give social boost to the owner. Modern painters have dropped most of these adjuncts. Photography takes care of the recollection side better than any painting can hope to do. Interior decorators use prints, which are cheaper and just as effective as any painting for their purpose. And when it comes to establishing an appearance of importance and wealth, the ownership of three Cadillacs can be generally granted to do the job better than the ownership of any Greco. So we have the modern picture. A bare, stripped-down, honest appeal to the eye. So bare, so unfamiliar, so pure, that we can hardly blame the lady who glances at the evidence of six months' labor and comes up with the phrase, my four-year-old daughter could do better. <laughs> Pictures that don't remind us of things and places that don't go well with the furniture. Pictures that don't look and often are not expensive. Okay, disclaimer, this was in the 50s, so now they are quite expensive. <laughs> okay. Pictures that are merely meant to be seen and enjoyed in their own right. Every time we really look at a good picture, we enter into one of the most exciting adventures available in our world. In effect, we see the world through another person's eyes. For a moment, we have the privilege of living inside another person's soul. And as often as not, it will be highly skillful eyes with a profoundly sensitive soul. Only music and literature offer similar rewards. These things alone release us from the constant and not always pleasant presence of our own selves. These things make us grow by thinking quickly the thoughts we would have thought slowly by ourselves, by making us hear the sounds we would have failed to hear, <clears throat> making us see the shapes, the lines, and the colors that surround us everywhere to surprise and delight us. Thoughts, sounds, shapes, and colors that left to ourselves, to our busy lives and hurried glances, we would miss and by missing them would leave the world having lived that much less. Um, so with that, I just want to repeat the quote of Constantial as well. 
I should not rationalize for the spectator the attitudes he assumes in relation to my work. I leave it to my work to suggest to him the manner of appreciating it. Perhaps if the spectator would allow himself to grow with it, my work may be able to accommodate such growth in an agreeable relationship. Okay, and we will just play another one that he likely would have listened to when he was painting.
Okay, and that's the end of this talk. Hope you enjoyed. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Find more of our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. To learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Mariel Chi, Ernie Martha and Tamaris Go from National Gallery Singapore. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. Thank you.